Well, there was a fellow who was once waiting on a flight, and if you've ever taken very many flights, you know that they oftentimes get delayed. And so he was wandering around his airport, he was looking for stuff to do, and he came across this ATM-looking machine, and it was curious, it was colorful, he didn't know what it was, and so he walked up and checked it out, and as it turned out, it was a flight insurance machine. And so what that amounted to is you just go in there and fill out a little form, kind of a little keyboard form, and you insert your $5, and you get flight insurance. It insured you against a canceled flight in case you lost money, but the biggest thing was it provided a pretty good little life insurance policy for your heirs should you die on that particular flight. You had to enter your flight number and and departure time. You had to enter all these specifics. So if there were a plane crash, then you would be covered for like up to $50,000. And he thought, well, $5, you know, this thing might get canceled, so why not? And so he invested his five bucks and he bought his policy. Well, he, he, he still had some time to kill. He thought, well, I'm hungry. So he wandered over to the food court, and it was pretty busy because apparently there were some weather things or a lot of flights being delayed, but there was the one restaurant that had the lowest amount of people waiting in line, and so he went and joined the shortest line, and it was the Chinese restaurant. And he, he got his pork fried rice, you know, and his general sauce chicken and all these things he loved, a couple of egg rolls, and of course it came with a fortune cookie. He went and sat down at his table. He enjoyed a very filling, because you got a lot of mass for the money at the Chinese restaurant, and he, he had a very, very good warm meal, and then he remembered his fortune cookie. And he thought, oh, I got to have my dessert, you know, even though you guys know fortune cookies kind of have like a slightly cardboard flavor to them. You know, they're, they're not like a, you know, they're not like a cookie. They're kind of in the realm of animal cracker. Is it a cookie or a cracker, right? And so fortune cookie, I, I don't know. But he cracked it open and he almost had a heart attack because look, look at what his fortune cookie told him right here. Your recent investment will pay high dividends. Yeah, that's disturbing, right? Last Sunday, we began our our three-week series I'm calling A Guide to Giving, and we talked about kingdom investments. We considered some of the ways that we are able to invest in God's work, invest in the kingdom of God. We talked about the attitudes of kingdom investors, and we're going to continue that study today. You know, a lot of us have our own personal ideas about what amounts to a good investment, but we're going to kind of go deeper than our human ideas. We're going to go beyond human wisdom because this morning what I'm calling this message and, and where we're going to go, we're going to, we're going to talk to Jesus who is your best financial advisor hands down. I know some of you might have your financial advisors. You might have folks that kind of help point you in the right direction on these kind of things, but as the people of God, we need to go to the Word of God and we need to go to the living word, Jesus Christ, to see what he has to say. And, and we're going to look at a really short passage. It is very concise, it is very clear, and it offers very straightforward teaching on biblical kingdom investments. But when it, the problem is when it, comes, when it comes to our money, we don't always know best. But we have to rest assured that Jesus does know best. You know, I read another true story. This is a very true story about a woman in Indiana. And she, she was a teacher 
uh, for a number of years, and she had a retirement plan. She had all these things. She had a pretty good future plotted out, and then she had this uh, person kind of offered her this sure thing financial investment opportunity, and he was a swindler. And she pulled all of her money out of her retirement savings, and she sunk her entire fortune, such as it was, into this guy's thing, you know, his sure thing. And, of course, his sure thing went away. That guy disappeared with all of her money. And when this goes down, then she went running down to the Better Business Bureau. She's going to find out something. She's going to turn this guy in. And, and they just looked at her, and they kind of shook their hands, and they had that bless-your-heart look on their face, you know. And, and the, the lady talking to her said, Honey, you know, we're, we're here to help you before things get bad. You know, you should check on things before you do them. Why, why didn't you come to us first so that we could have told you to stay away from this fellow. And this is her quote. The lady said, oh yes, I've known about you and I know what you do, but I didn't want to come beforehand because I was scared you might tell me not to do it. Foolishness, right? That we don't want to be told what we kind of know is the truth, but we're willing to risk, risk everything on a whim. You know, today... Before you invest another dime, unless some of you are doing stop trades on your phone right now, which I doubt. I doubt there's any e-traders out there or Charles Schwab's. You know, there might be some angry birds or some candy crush going on, but certainly no trading. By the way, in case you guys didn't know, I know, see, when you have your phones out, did you guys know that there's a secret light on the back of it that pastors know if you have your Bible app open or not? Did you know that? We do. We have a special lens. I'm just, you know what I'm saying? So... But let's listen to the wisdom of Jesus, your best financial advisor. We're going to read from Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse 19. Jesus said, Don't store up for yourselves treasure on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves don't break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart is will be also. Now let's pray. Heads bowed, eyes closed, let's pray, and then we're going to explore together. Father God, we, we come to you this morning in pursuit of truth, in pursuit of wisdom. And we, fi- we find ourselves uh, in, in our culture, in our world here in America, we're surrounded by people to cl- who claim to have all sorts of knowledge and expert experience in finances. And these people, they fill up our airwaves and they fill up our television screens with all their products and with all their programs, and a lot of them with their gimmicks. But invariably, it seems that these people, to me, are rarely interested in, in enriching other people in the world. The ones they really want to enrich are themselves such as the world of so many of these so-called financial advisors. But you, O Lord, are different because you are the truth. There's nothing that we have for which you have need. Your, Your interests and your heart, they're always centered upon us, your children. Your desire is the very, the very best for us. You, you want us to pursue wisdom. You want us to be obedient. Truly, you are the very best, the most faithful financial advisor that we could ever find. Your investment plan is a holy one. It's a holy plan. It, it's a selfless plan. And above all, it is eternal. 
So lead us, O Lord, to be frequent and faithful investors in your kingdom. Teach us this day something that's going to actually change our thinking and compel us to change the way that we live our financial lives, our stewardship lives. And we pray this together in that precious name of Jesus. Amen. Now, before we delve into what we just read Jesus saying regarding investments, regarding our treasure, you know, where our heart is, we've got to handle a few preliminaries because here's the thing. When we're trying to, to do the right thing, when we're trying to do the biblical thing and teaching about this realm of stewardship and money and giving, usually what we have to do first is undo a lot of bad stuff. We have to undo a lot of things that culturally that our world is pouring into us within this realm. And so the first thing we're going to do, I want us to work together. We're going to dispel a few modern misunderstandings and actually what has crept into the church, some false doctrines that have, that have developed regarding this information, this, this teaching from the Scripture. You know, when, when it comes to Jesus, when it comes to our money and our finances, there are some really bad interpreters out there. There are some, I don't know how else to say it, there's just some false teaching. There's some erroneous teaching in this realm, and, and, and this is especially true in our age in which there seems to have become the rebirth of this ancient system, this old system that has never worked since its inception, and yet it is rearing its head in America today. And some of you know what I'm talking about. It's called socialism. Socialism has found a new birth in portions of America today. And if you don't know what that is, that's the supposed equal sharing of and, and the communal spreading of wealth and resources and property among all people. It's the total elimination of wealth. It's the total elimination of free enterprise. It's the total elimination of privately owned anything. And that includes privately owned business. And this is actually, sadly, what so much of our higher education system is promoting today. This is what is being taught in our universities. This is what is being taught in our state-sponsored schools. And unfortunately, there are even some folk who would dare to call upon the Scriptures to support this line of thinking. So we're going to work together. We're going to dispel a few of these, of these bad notions. We're going to kind of take them out back and shoot them, you know, if we want to put it in southern language, because it's what we, we, we got to get rid of the falsity first before we actually go in pursuit of the truth. And so let's, let's begin right here. I've got a few bullets. You see them on your paper, that first section? Go ahead and write these things down. Number one is this. This is where we got to start. Jesus does not advocate poverty as a means to spirituality. Now, is poverty a bad thing? No. Is, have any of you ever noticed in your spiritual life that, uh, or in everyday life that sometimes it seems those who have less just seem to be a lot happier than those who have more? I mean, we see that sometimes. Sometimes it doesn't matter at all. But there are people who would claim that this is what Jesus promoted. And the verse that they always go to to espouse this theology is Matthew 20, 19, verse 21. It's their proof verse. Look at it. If you want to be perfect, Jesus said to him, go and sell your belongings and give to the poor, 
and you will have treasure in heaven, then come follow me. Now, that sounds pretty outright, just straight and outright, doesn't it? You know, if you, if you just pull that verse out of its context, if you lift it solo and just read it on its own, you say, hey, Jesus said if you want to follow him, you've got to go and sell everything. You've got to divest yourself entirely and give all that away. And then and only then you can follow Jesus. So Jesus is calling his people to poverty. But is he? What's the context of that verse? Who's he talking to? Does anybody know? Talking to the rich young ruler. Right. That rich young man, that rich young ruler who comes to him, you know, inquiring about what it's going to take to follow Jesus. Of course, Jesus being Jesus looks right through his soul like a, like a laser and he sees what his God truly is, his little G God, and it's his money, it's his wealth. And so until Christ can be, Christ cannot become the Lord of his life until the other God is dethroned. Does that make sense? And so for him, he's got to do that in order to follow Jesus. Now here's the thing. There are some of us that are in that same boat. There are plenty of people today that their money, that their wealth is their identity, it's their everything, and it has literally become their God. And until they have a breakdown in that realm, they generally won't seek the Lord because they don't, they don't need the Lord. Because they've got, they own stuff. They have their stuff. And, and they, they're in that same realm. But what I'm saying is we can't, we can never just lift a verse out of its context, the speaker and the listener, and say, oh, that's, that's talking to me, that's talking to you, that's talking to everybody. That's bad interpretation. Okay? So that's, that's one thing we need to dispel. Here's another untruth that we need to dispel. Go ahead and write this down. The Bible, actually, it recognizes the right to material possessions that are acquired honestly. As long as they're acquired honestly, then, then the Bible recognizes that right. And proponents, there's this, um, in, in some realms, there is a, there's, a, there's a movement, and we see this crop up from time to time in cults. Where in cults, the people who get involved in those cults, and, and by the way, if you don't know what a cult is, I'm not talking about the occult. I'm not talking about people with like little devil statues and stuff. I'm talking about cults are entities that have a little bit of Jesus included, just enough so that they have the appearance of a connection to biblical Christianity, and yet they are added to. They have other hoops to jump through. And in a lot of cults, what you will have amongst the cult leaders is that they require people to sell all their stuff. And by the way, they give that to the cult. And there are some proponents of Christian communism out there, by the way, who say, hey, that's what we're supposed to do. If we're going to be a real church, then everybody needs to sell all their stuff and give it, give it to the church, give it to the organization, and you know, then things will be holy. And they, they always go back, there's one verse they always go back to, or one passage, it's in Acts chapter 2. And this is t- describing the Christian community right at the birth of the church. In verse 44, it says, Now all the believers were together and held all things in common, They sold their possessions and property and distributed the proceeds to all as any had need. There there are actually some who will use this biblical description for kind of a social 
communal living structure in this particular case and say this, this, this is the way it's supposed to be everywhere. But there's a problem. This passage is something that we call in, in, in hermeneutics, in biblical interpretation. This is a passage, and i got a word I want you to see. This passage is something that's called descriptive. It describes something that's going on. What do you think prescriptive means? What's a prescription? Right, right. Just like what a doctor writes for you, and you get a prescription for a treatment, and you need to do this in order to get healthy. So it's something that you're assigned. A prescription is kind of like, it's kind of like a doctor's homework take-home assignment. You know, you get that assignment, you go and fulfill that, you get the medication, or sometimes a prescription is for physical therapy. Sometimes a prescription is for respiratory therapy. There are all these different things that you get prescriptions for. But there's a difference. You know, there are things in the Scripture. Here's the thing. Just because it's in the Bible does not mean it's a command that everyone is supposed to perform. There are things in the Bible. Acts, what kind of book is Acts, by the way? I know, but yeah, but what type of literature? It's historical literature. It describes the birth of the church and the apostles during it's 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 history. Now it's God inspired history and it speaks of God inspired things, but we have to be careful in lifting anything out of its context and assigning a doctrine to it. By the way, this is what snake handling people do. You realize that? And some of you are like, what? You know, but there's that one passage about how they handled venomous snakes and were bitten and no one and then they're like, oh well we're all supposed to do that now. We're supposed to be handling snakes, you know? And I'm like, you know, you know, they don't transfer my letter to that church. You know what I'm saying? Things are descriptive, but you can't... I've got another example for you. I've got another case in point to help you understand that some things written in the Scripture were not written personally to you, okay? In 1 Timothy 5.23, it says, Don't continue drinking only water, but use a little wine because of your stomach and your frequent illnesses. i got stomach problems. Who wouldn't claim that verse, right? I got the celiac disease. I got stomach problems all the time. And, and it's right there in the Bible. Paul said we ought to all do away with the water, boys. Get out the wine. We're supposed to all drink wine from now on and no more water. And you see where I, you know, you hear what I'm saying? Who, who wrote that? Paul, who's he writing to? Timothy, he was writing an instruction to Timothy, and it's God-inspired, it's in the Word of God, but it's not this carte blanche command. You see what I'm saying? We have to be so careful developing a doctrine based upon a historic description or something personally written to someone else. We always have to consider that context. You know, in our world today, there's something else that's going on in this revival of socialism, is that there's a lot of wealth shaming. Anyone who has anything is portrayed as evil, and if they have anything, then they must have, they must have stolen it from some poor people who are their victims. I mean, we see this on television all the time. If you own anything, then you must have robbed that stuff from some other deserving person. And so there's wealth shaming. It's to the point where people don't, you know, pe- people are placed under the gun, you know. They, they get attacked 
Social media attacks, things go viral about the most bizarre things, and this is the realm that we live in. There's another frequent point of misunderstanding, and, and, and Christian, it's simply this. You don't have to be ashamed of what you own. You don't have to be ashamed. Indeed, you have to actually have, here's the thing, how can you be a good steward of anything if you don't have ownership of that of which you are supposed to be a steward? Does that make sense? Stewardship is the right and proper and wise use of resources, distribution of resources, investment of resources. So how could we have all this teaching on stewardship in the Scripture if no one has anything over which they are called to be stewards? And so something I want you to write down, um, Christian, you need to remember this at the next little bullet. God expects us to enjoy those blessings that he gives, and that includes the material blessings. You see where I'm trying to walk that line of balance, though? Because I never want to sound like one of those prosperity preachers because I'm not a prosperity preacher. You know what I'm saying? I, I reject the prosperity gospel in its entirety, but I also reject the socialist gospel in its entirety. The truth is found in the balance that's down the middle, in wisdom that it is okay to have things, and God blesses us on occasion, and God created us to enjoy us, And he blesses us in ways so that we can enjoy this life that he's given us. It just stands to reason. Paul instructed Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, 17. He said, instruct those who are rich in this present age not to be arrogant or to set their hope on the uncertainty of wealth, but on God who richly provides us with all things to enjoy. There it is, right there. He he created things for his children to enjoy. So no, it's not evil to procure things, to even accumulate wealth, but we can't have any arrogance in that wealth because when we develop that arrogance, we move to a point where it becomes our God and replaces God. You see what I'm saying? That's why all this teaching is in the Scripture because this is the biggest slippery slope of all. This is the one place where we're so likely to fall down Was it, is it with regard to what we have, what we own. So let's go ahead and write this down because this follows right on the heels of that. Material possessions are not in and of themselves what? Evil. Unless they become idols in your life. Things are not evil. Nothing is evil. Unless those things become idols in your life. Money is not evil. Now scripture says it's the root of it, which is true. Right? But it is not evil. The same, there's nothing. I can pull, I probably only got like $5 in my pocket. There you go, $5. That's all I got. There's nothing evil about this banknote. Other than the fact that there's nothing to back it up. (laughs) But the good faith and reputation of the United States government, such as it is, Right? It's just paper. Now, it's fancy. It's got watermarks, and it's got that little... We're in a pretty sad place when they have to put those little security stripes on a $5 bill. You know, that used to just be in the 20s and stuff. Of course, the 20 is the new $5 bill. Right? Because some of you remember, we had one of these when we were a kid. We were, it was party time, wasn't it? Y'all remember that? We had this when we were going places. This was about 10 gallons of gas when I was a teenager. No lie. There's nothing evil about this. Nothing. But what you do with it determines whether or not it's evil. 
right? You can bless with it, or you can steal it from someone. You can curse with it. It's not the thing, but it's the heart of the person who has stewardship over the thing. And then, truth be told, there are actually scriptures that teach us to work hard, that instruct us to do well, that even encourage us to prosper as the people of God. Look at Matthew 25, verse 27. This is when Jesus was telling a parable to some listeners, and this is a quote from it. Then you should have deposited my money with the bankers, and I would have received my money back with interest when I returned. You know, wisdom of an investment brings... You know, it's not smart to go bury it in a can in the yard where it can't earn anything. But we're supposed to invest and put it to work and use wisdom. Proverbs 6, I love this. Go to the ant, you slacker. Observe its ways and become wise. Without leader, administrator, or ruler, it prepares its provisions in summer. It gathers its food during the harvest. This is, a, this is God teaching through an ant. You want to see how we're supposed to live? Look at those little ants. They work hard, man. They're like this big and they're out gathering stuff. And they survive because they accumulate what they need. Proverbs 14, 23. There is profit in all hard work, but endless talk leads only to poverty. Somebody should tell that to the politicians. Right? Proverbs 24, verses 3 and 4. A house is built by wisdom and is established by understanding, but knowledge, by, by knowledge the rooms are filled with every precious and beautiful treasure. You see, the Bible describes the people of God, both Old Testament and New, as working hard to obtain wealth and property in order to be stewards over those things. And finally, there's one last myth Misunderstanding that we got to eliminate in our culture today, and this might make somebody mad, and frankly, I don't care. It is not the government's job to take care of us. It is not. Because interestingly, what people kind of forget this day and time, what kind of government do we have in the United States of America? Yeah, we know it's a republic, and a lot of folks don't know that. I hear that democracy thrown around all the time. I'm like, civic, civic, civics. But we're a government of the people, by the people, for the people. Who funds it? We all do, you know? How can what we fund turn around and take, back, take care of us? You know what I'm saying? I mean, it just makes absolutely no sense. Paul gave Timothy a pretty dire warning, 1 Timothy 5, 8. He says, but if anyone does not provide for his own family, especially for his own household, he's denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Folks, meeting the physical needs, not necessarily the whims and wants and desires, but the needs of one another is part of our Christian stewardship. Indeed, it's our responsibility to provide for our families, for our children as we're raising them up. And here's the thing, children, there comes a point in life when it becomes your responsibility to take care of mom and dad. Oh, yeah, it flips. It does. It flips. It's coming. And if you don't, then you're worse than an unbeliever. That's what, that's what God teaches in his word. So, a few preliminaries. And I know you're thinking, gosh, Jeff, that's a whole, we just shot a whole lot of rabbits out back. Well, you know, we had to, you know, there's all these financial, cultural elements that are the elephants in the room that we got to deal with. But now, you know, just a few things 
kind of dispersed biblically, but now I want us to consider your finances according to Jesus. So we're going to look at these verses again. You ready? Verse 19. Remember what Jesus said, Don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. So right here, right here in this first verse, we're going to break it down in three verses. Right here in this first verse, we see number one, write it down. We covered a lot of blanks already, hadn't we? We're moving on down the line, you see? We have some problems with our man-made investment plan. We have some problems. We mentioned these in a general way last week, but we're going to get specific today. And one problem that we have with our man-made, human-made investment plan, write this down, bullet number one, it tends to focus upon us. It focuses upon self. I know, I know, because it's one of my favorite stories. So I know I've told it to you once, twice, three times already. I'm going to tell it to you again. Y'all remember God's nickel story? Little boy going to church one Sunday by himself, back when a kid could walk to church without, like, having to worry about getting kidnapped on the way and stuff, you know, during a simpler time. And his grandpa gave him two nickels. One nickel's for the offering plate. One nickel was to get an ice cream cone at the one drugstore that was open on Sunday because they were, they were, they were mind-blowing. They had a drugstore open on Sunday. So he's going to go there and get an ice cream cone. And as he's walking happily to church and fondling his two precious nickels, he walks across the bridge over the creek down below his grandpa's house, and he drops, you know, because kids drop stuff. And he dropped a nickel, and it tumbled through the air, and it landed perfectly in a crack. And he dropped down on his knees and watched it plunge into the water of the creek below. And he stood up, dusted himself off, put the other nickel in his pocket. You know what he declared? He said, well, I reckon there goes God's nickel. Right? Now, here's the thing. The problem is, that's the way a lot of God's people think about their finances. That's how we live out our stewardship and our finances. In fact, go ahead. I got some more bullets to write. Go on next. Most of the time... Our finances have material possessions as the primary goal, accumulating stuff. You know, and Jesus recognized that. He, he points it out here. He, he wouldn't be giving us a warning if we did not have this innate problem, this issue within our human condition. We have a, we have a desire, just this insatiable desire to accumulate piles of stuff. And we put up fences around our stuff and, and boundaries around our stuff. And this is my stuff and that's your stuff and don't touch my stuff. Parents, y'all know what I'm talking about? We have our things. And it seems that in our day and time, which is so weird, we live in this thing of calling for socialism, and yet we want our stuff. We want our possessions. But Jesus had something to say about that. He reminded us also, write this down, that these, permanent, these material possessions are not permanent. They're not permanent. And they actually all decay. You know, he talks about moth, moths destroying. The moths to us are generally, they're just a nuisance. You know, one gets in the house. I get fussed at at my house if I kill a moth. You know, a moth is like a fly to me. Flies are, you know, but then I get preached at. And Jackson, he's the moth catcher. He catches them and he ushers them to the back door and he sets them free, you know. And, you know, that's fine. That's good. But, you know, moths in ancient times, they like to eat things. 
They like to eat natural fibers. Wool is amongst their favorite. It just must taste really good. And moths would get into, now clothing back then cost a lot more. Some of people's property, their greatest amount of money was invested in their personal clothing. And if moths got into their closet and ate holes in their clothing, it was devastating. It's like losing a major investment. We can't relate to that. And he talked about rust destroying. What do we associate rust with? Metal, right? But this is the same word in the Greek that's used to describe rats and vermin eating crops. Like if rats got into a silo and just ate an entire silo full of corn or something like that. You know, it's the same word. And so just imagine all these things, you know, material stuff gets eaten by other things. Material things deteriorate. Material things rust and fall apart. Material things go away. They're just, they're not permanent. They're not permanent. And then one more, did I already do the permanent? Okay, yeah, yeah. And then one more thing that he points out here is that your material possessions may also be taken away from you. Right? There's not a single thing that we own that cannot be taken away if someone so desires. And so the the truth be told, the only thing you're going to go to your grave with is Jesus in a suit of clothes. And that's it. And there's nothing else that you get to take with you. And so I think we need to pipe up and listen to what Jesus has to say regarding our finances. Now, let's keep going. Verse 20. Remember what Jesus said? He said, but store up for yourselves treasure in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves don't break in and steal. So number two, Jesus actually commands us to invest in heaven. There's no other way to describe this. This is a command. This is an imperative. It's an order. It's not optional. It's not advice. This is a real-life marching order from the King of Kings. He says without equivocation that believers, we must store up for ourselves treasures in heaven. That's an investment. Storing up equals investing. And so when you start to obey and when you actually invest in the kingdom of God in heavenly things, you've got to understand the implications of that. These are your bullets. Write them down. First off, you've got to remember that you're investing in eternal things. Eternal things. How is that different from all of our other stuff? Right? What's so funny? It's not funny. It's kind of tragic, but it's true. That we spend all of this time in our lifetimes pursuing you guys remember, remember, I'm talking to people my age. You remember winning that trophy and stuff when you were a kid and winning that medal, that coveted medal, that trophy, that thing that you probably don't know where it is anymore. But someday when you're gone, someone's going to have stewardship over all these mementos from your life, and a few of them might be claimed by your descendants because they look at that and say, oh, you know, this was important to daddy or this was important to mama. But you know what happens to the vast majority of stuff like that? Landfill. Because your grandkids, they're not going to give a rip. You know? They don't, they don't know what that is and don't care. You know, unless they can sell it and make money off of it. They don't care. It gets left in these storage lockers, and you have whole TV shows about people auctioning things that gets left over in these storage lockers. Right? I mean, in our, in our system where it's all about the stuff, you know, there's coming a point where, where stuff doesn't matter, right? 
But that's not the case with the treasures we store up in heaven, is it? Because those investments yield, yield a, they yield long after we're gone. You also got to remember this, you're investing in people. In people. That's your next blank there, and that's really important. You're investing in souls. You're investing in eternity. And it's never, ever been a bad option to invest in people. You know, one of the greatest tragedies of our current culture is that materialism, is that greed. And in the process of all that, people who are hurting get pushed aside. And and so many get cast aside in our world and absolutely forgotten. But in the glory of Jesus Christ and in the power of his love and by the power of his blood, when you invest in the kingdom, you're investing in the everlasting souls of these people who surround you in this life. And you got to remember when you do that, write this down, your treasures are going to last forever. One way or another, people are eternal. Amen? One way or the other. And when you make a heavenly investment, you are investing in eternity, and it pays dividends generation after generation after generation. And then finally, God's return, a lot of blanks, get them down. His return on that investment is called the salvation of the lost, and that can't ever be taken away. Right? All your stuff can be taken from you or moths and rust can destroy it or your grandkids or kids can haul it to a dumpster. But investment in the things of God, the salvation of the lost can never be taken away. Jesus declared boldly in John chapter 10, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. That, my friends, is a promise that should make us want, more than anything else, want to make our heavenly investments. And then as he closed, Jesus reminded us of this eternal truth. In verse 21, he said, The location of your investments reveals that condition of your heart. And he said it so simply, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Christian, where is your treasure? Where is it? Because your money, your efforts, your time, these things tell where your treasure is. They tell all the truth about you and who you really are and what really matters to you. Have you discovered the wisdom of investing in the kingdom of God? Just think about your own personal investment in time in ministry. Time in ministry. Think about your family checkbook. Think about where you're investing yourself, where you're investing your money. And then honestly ask yourself the question, is Jesus Christ the Lord of my life or is he a side dish? And something else is really the Lord of my life. And only you know the answer to that question. In 1947, Don Lutz Jr., Pittsfield, Massachusetts, got a few pennies and change in his high school lunchroom. And one of them had a very odd appearance. It was a 1943 penny called a war penny, but there was something wrong with this war penny. It looked just like every other penny. And Dennis, you knows what I'm talking about. In 1943, all United States pennies were, strunk, were struck on zinc-coated steel 
planchettes, the little blanks that they have that they make coins from because they were saving every molecule of copper for the World War II war effort. It went into weapons and weaponry and ammunition. And so you've probably seen those 1943 pennies. They look kind of silver gray. They just look different. The stuff of legend over time, every collector, I, I collected, I still have coins. I collected coins. I collect stuff. And every collector of coins always dreamed. You know, when I was a kid, we always checked our change because we were looking for that coveted 1914D or the 1943 copper penny because we knew there still had to be some out there somewhere. Well, Mr. Don Lutz passed away last year, last spring. And his children were going through his things, and one of them discovered the penny, and he called someone, and they called someone. And then the word spread like wildfire in the coin-collecting world, and his, his lunch money change discovery became the stuff of legend. And so they sent it off to be graded, and I actually have a picture of young Don, and that's his old kind of scratched-up looking, it's, a, it's described as a discovery specimen, Okay. 1943 bronze, one-cent piece. Now, how much did Don have invested in that one-cent piece? One cent. He got, it was a penny in his change. And it sold one year ago this month in September at auction for $1.7 million. And we believe it is most likely the highest-yielding single investment in human history, you know, from one penny to $1.7 million. Don Lutz had one of the greatest treasures in America and the world, and it was in his little wooden curiosity box sitting on his dresser for 50 years, and he didn't even know it. Now, here's the thing. I quite think that Don, with his little treasure that he didn't even know he had, hidden away in his little box, was a lot like people, so many people, who claim to be Christians today. Oh, what a treasure we have in Jesus Christ and in His kingdom, but how many of us are squandering that treasure and instead pursuing the lure of the world instead of the passion of Jesus Christ? I want you to hear what he said. Matthew 13, 44 through 46, Jesus said, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure buried in a field that a man found and reburied, and then in his joy he goes and sells everything he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, and when he found that one priceless pearl, he went and sold everything he had and bought it. That is how much a treasure the kingdom of God is. The question is, is it the ultimate treasure in your life? Nothing in this world compares to the joy, to the fulfillment, to the significance of following and serving the risen Lord. And i got to ask you, church, Christian, are you ready? Are you prepared to make a change? Do you need a new investment plan in your life? Listen, I highly, highly recommend Jesus Christ and His Word because He is so much more reliable. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. And by the way, that's about everything in your life. 
Not just the Bible stuff. It's about everything in your life, and that includes the way you earn and treat and invest and give of your financial life, your money. So I want to challenge you to trust in the the best financial advisor ever known, and his name is Jesus. Y'all pray with me. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, I do thank you that you are the, the wisest and best and most faithful advisor of all, and I beg you to please help your people see the folly of our humanistic thinking and and the sin that lies within a, a personal economy that is consumed with self and stuff. Give us hearts, O oh Lord, that are bent toward these heavenly investments, giving to actually to make a difference in other people's lives, giving to undergird the work of the Lord through His church. Awaken us, O oh Lord, to the stark reality of our finances. Truly, you have said so eloquently and so plainly that, that wherever our treasure is, that's where our heart is going to be. May we find our imperfect, sinful, but blood-washed and forgiven hearts out in the harvest field. May our hearts be awakened to and broken by the needs and the pain that surround us. May we be convicted by personal finances that worth worship nothing but us, worship ourselves. God, open our ears and our hearts that we won't just listen to you, but that we'll actually hear you, and that we just won't actually hear you, but that we will step out in faith and obey you, even, especially in the realm of stewardship, money, finances, giving. And we pray this in your precious and in your supremely valuable name. The name above all names. But you see that last section on your paper there. Getting into God's financial market. I hate to use that language, but, you know, we're using that financial language all morning, so I just wanted to keep it in theme, okay? So just some life applications for you. Things I recommend that I encourage you to do are some form of these as you seek to take actions of obedience in response to your encounter with the Word of God. Number one being this. I want to encourage you, Christian, to give in faith and trust God to provide for all your needs. Because that's really, that's the only way you can actually give in a sacrificial way is if you trust God is going to provide for you. Does that make sense? Because otherwise, you're self-insured. I want you to be God-insured, you know, and God-assured. Because he is, he's worthy and he's able. You know, you said he owns the cattle of a thousand hills. There's nothing that God doesn't own ultimately. Actually, we don't own anything. We're just stewards. We kind of keep over stuff for a while until we're gone and somebody else is taking care of that stuff. Does that make sense? So I just encourage you in that way. Number two, I want you to remember that you can never outgive God. You just can't. You can't outgive God. God, God. God is the greatest giver of all. He gave us His one and only Son. That whoever would believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Amen? I mean, he, he, gave, he gave totally of himself. He, he, he gave his son as a sacrifice on your behalf. And so you cannot. There's no possible way you can outgive God. Number three is going to make some of you mad. That's okay. 
But don't expect God to get involved in your finances until you become a faithful investor in his work. What do you think I mean by that? Yeah, that's, that's, that's a part of it. Right, right. You know, who are we that if we don't take part at all in the economy of the kingdom of God to presume upon God to come and fix the mess that we construct for ourselves? But we think that way. We think that way. We get ourselves in the deepest and most unbelievable messes in the materialism and finance realm. And we, you know, we, God's got to come through, fix this. But on the way into that mess, you know, well, first, were you walking in a way, giving, steward, stewarding in a way that glorifies God? You know, see what I'm saying? I mean, there, there are all kinds of human interactions that I could use to, to, do, to, do, to explain this, but I, th- I think you get it. I think you get it. Sometimes we presume. We presume upon other people in our relationships, don't we? We expect them to come through for us, you know, even when they don't owe us anything, but we expect them to come through. We live in the, we live in the age of expectation. We live in the age of entitlement where somebody needs to fix this. Somebody needs to take care of me. Somebody needs to do my stuff, and we carry that over in the realm of theology. Well, God's got to take care of my stuff. But are you being a poor part of taking care of God's stuff? You know, that's, that's, that's the first decision you have to make. And so, again, we're, we're, this, is deep, this is deep stuff. It's hard to, to kind of cover these topics in just a, a handful of weeks. But that's what we're doing again, just as a refresher. This is not what we do all the time, guests and friends. This is not what we talk about every Sunday. Again, you've landed in week two of just a three-week refresher on biblical stewardship and giving and and I kind of brought in as much as I could some of the cultural stuff that's going on because the Bible speaks to some of these cultural things that are going on, okay? And so, uh, again, I hope that's an encouragement for you and I hope we all learn something. you got lots of notes to take home and, and refresh with later, all right? So that's my challenge for you. Now, it's our, it is our giving time. The guys are coming with the basket.